I felt it was time to apply the military skills taught me from four years of Army ROTC training. After all, it was Harry Truman who had commissioned the ROTC program in Carthage that I had been fortunate enough to serve as a cadet company commander. After taking the military oath at the induction center in Kansas City, Missouri, our government placed me in Air Force Intelligence. Upon graduation from a whole series of intelligence curriculums, I was then handpicked to serve in Defense Secretary Robert S. McNamara's ultra-top-secret unit designated Task Force Alpha based in the remote northeast jungles of Thailand. From there, the U.S. Air Force orchestrated a secret air and ground war in Laos and Cambodia. Our mission was to be the deniable link between authorized military operations and the unauthorized activities of the Central Intelligence Agency. We assigned Air America the tasks that were just quite frankly too unthinkable for the U.S. military to conduct. Now this was my introduction to black or deniable activities. In the course of serving eight years within the Air Force's intelligence community and pulling two and one half years of duty in Southeast Asia, I met and worked with some of the people who would later surface in the so-called Iran-Contra affair. In fact, it was in Southeast Asia that I met and worked with a man named William Cooper, the Air America pilot who died in the crash of an American cargo plane that was shot down in Nicaragua October 5th of 1986, the crash that exposed the CIA's efforts to violate the so-called Bolin Amendments, you know, the laws Congress passed to limit American assistance to the Contras. But after becoming disillusioned with the peacetime military, I elected to be separated from the military in 1976. I then enrolled in a pilot training curriculum in southwest Missouri and graduated three years later with nearly every available aviation license and rating known. Then by sheer coincidence, I entered an industry laden with agents of the KGB and those of our so-called allied Japan who were actually attempting to steal American defense technology. So it was in Oklahoma City in 1980, while working as executive vice president of a high technology trading company, that I was recruited by the FBI's counterintelligence division to monitor and help disrupt the efforts of agents of the Kremlin who had penetrated the American machine tool industry. These activities and adventures, I might add, required me to travel behind the Iron Curtain, not only to sow some seeds of deceit, but to pirate some Soviet technology as well. And where I feel this story gets interesting is later while working under deep cover on the now famous Toshiba case, the one involving the theft and sale of American nuclear submarine technology to the KGB by Japan's Toshiba Machine Tool Company. I was, it was then that I was put into play with an agent of the CIA who carried the code name of John Cathy. Now this took place in Oklahoma City in early 1982. And Agent John Cathy's real name is Oliver Lawrence North, the same Marine Lieutenant Colonel later accused of taking over the Department of State by Ronald Reagan's administration. As North and I worked together, we shared memories of not only our combat experiences in Southeast Asia, but rehashed our mutual disdain for Congress as well. The same Congress that had put us as young soldiers in harm's way and then sat back and debated the morality of it all. The North also shared with me what he referred to as a secret Reagan plan to destroy the USSR. He continuously referred to Russia in our conversations as a failed colonial power, that the timing was right 
to incite revolution within the Russian colonies. It was through these efforts, North confided, that the CIA felt Russia collapse economically. Then North asked if I was interested in helping to deal what he called a death blow to the evil empire that it kept its finger on the nuclear trigger throughout my lifetime. I can say this, I enthusiastically jumped on board what is now referred to as the secret Reagan agenda. It was then, through my rather intimate relationship with North, that I was quietly tapped to support the Contra effort. North arranged for me to be introduced to a man named Adler Berriman Seal. Barry Seal was an asset of the CIA and the man tasked with setting up the necessary facilities to keep the Contras alive in body and soul, as Ronald Reagan had instructed Oliver North. Now that brings this story to Mena, Arkansas, because it was in Mena that Barry Seal had set up operations to covertly support and modify aircraft belonging to various federal agencies. Hey, but enough about my background. Besides, I'm getting bored just sitting here talking. You know, Barry Seal referred to me, as he did to himself, as a calculated risk taker, and I suppose that sums up the nature of most pilots. I've also been accused of being a rather action-oriented individual, so I've got an idea. Let's leave this stuffy office and head on out to the airport. You know, airplanes play a major role in this story. In fact, airplanes leave the so-called trail of truth that will follow as we lay open the MENA connection for public inspection. As you can see, I'm now dressed more appropriate to that, the role of a flight instructor. Uh, this is the way I dressed as I trained the Nicaraguan pilots in uh, near Mena, Arkansas. We're also filming now in the mall factory, mall aircraft factory in Georgia for a reason. That reason being the mall aircraft, aircraft such as this one, came to bear heavy in the Iran-Contra story. As uh, Richard Secord, Oliver North, and the CIA went shopping for small aircraft to use in Nicaragua in a hostile, very hostile combat environment, they came to the Mall Aircraft Company because Mall had a proven track record and built a very unique aircraft, an aircraft very suited to be used in rough terrain, unimproved conditions, primarily because of the what is referred to as a conventional landing gear configuration using a tailwheel in lieu of a nose wheel. The Mall Aircraft, in addition to being a high-performance STOL or short takeoff and landing airplane, afforded the capability of delivering the necessary supplies and munitions uh, to the guerrilla war action in Nicaragua as the Contras fought the Sandinista soldiers. My role in all of this, of course, was to use my flight instructor credentials and expertise, pass along my nation skills to approximately 24 Nicaraguan nationals so that they could, in fact, liberate their own country so that they could go back and replace the CIA's efforts, the CIA's efforts to keep the Contras alive, body and soul, as uh, Ronald Reagan said, to keep the Contras in the field, supplied with munitions, regardless of what Congress, the American Congress said. I'm not here to debate the rightness or wrongness of our efforts. In this documentary, I simply want to convince you, the viewer, that this went on and that this aircraft had a very instrumental role in all of that. In my book, Compromised, uh, Clinton Bush and the CIA, I refer to a, uh, a time in 1984 in which a friend of mine, uh, William Cooper, 
a pilot that I'd known from uh, Thailand, an Air America pilot, flew an aircraft very similar to this aircraft into the North Little Rock Airport. He was flying that day with a, another Arkansan pilot, a man named Buzz Sawyer. Buzz Sawyer was from Magnolia, Arkansas, and Buzz had a distinguished career in aviation. Uh, his roots also went back to that of Air America, Thailand, the CIA, the place where a lot of us young, patriotic people from the Midwest cut our teeth in these deep, dark secrets that are still secrets for the most part of what actually went on in Southeast Asia. Uh, little did I know that was the last time I would see Buzz Sawyer. In fact, it was Bill Cooper at the controls of the C-123K, the fat lady, that was shot down in Nicaragua October 5th, 1986, thus exposing the whole Iran-Contra affair. In the right seat in that C-123K was Mr. Sawyer as well. I lost two friends that day. I tell you this story now because I think it's important for the American people to understand what we did in and around Mena, Arkansas, and why I chose to cross that line and get involved in a very deep black operation in and around Mena, an operation that neither the Democratic Party nor the Republicans want to accept ever happened. So the Democrats and Republicans don't want to accept the MENA operation ever happened, huh? That's the problem. A lot of important people who have a lot to lose would like to convince you that MENA never happened. But it did happen. And one very large, undeniable piece of evidence MENA was CIA-backed is the airplane the government provided Barry Seal so he could fly tons of munitions from Arkansas to Central America. That airplane, the Fairchild C-123, nicknamed the Fat Lady, connects dots between the CIA's Air America and Southeast Asia. Mina, Arkansas, the CIA's proprietary airline in Miami, Florida, named Southern Air Transport, and the Iran-Contra affair, the so-called Hasifa Sukdown. That was the day Barry Seal's Fat Lady crashed in Nicaragua and the Reagan-Bush administration could no longer deny they were bypassing the law of Congress and the will of the American people. Let's go back to the airport. Terry would like to show you an airplane similar to an old friend of his. He called her the Fat Lady, and it's time for her to sing. And what a story she has to tell. The real story of Iran-Contra. The one more appropriately entitled the MENA connection. Barry Seal was provided a provider, very appropriately, a C-123K that had been stored in an Air Force museum at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio. That aircraft, the C-123K that Barry Seal affectionately nicknamed the Fat Lady, becomes the common thread that sews together several black operations and a fairly dark period of American history in the mid-1980s. You see, I was at Mena, Arkansas, the day Barry Seal first flew in his C-123K, the Fat Lady. The C-123K was a very instrumental aircraft in that it had the payload capability to fly munitions from Arkansas to staging areas in Central America primarily Honduras and El Salvador. The interesting part of the story is these were weapons that were drawn from 
National Guard armories in Arkansas at a time in which Bill Clinton was commander-in-chief of the Arkansas National Guard. Some of these weapons were then mated with secret component parts that were being built by CIA contractors in Arkansas, component parts that would, in effect, bear no serial numbers, component parts that would become untraceable. Little did we all know that a C-123K, such as this one, would be shot down by a Soviet SA-7 handheld missile on October the 5th, 1986, and thereby shed a lot of unwanted light on a very secret operation, a secret operation backed by the CIA to bypass the will of Congress and supply the Contras in their effort to defeat the Sandinista regime. As you can probably tell, Terry Reed loves airplanes and flying is one of his passions. His ability to transfer his flying skills to others is why Barry Seal and the CIA hired him. But Terry's story is much larger than just that of a flight instructor. He joined Oliver North's MENA operation with bona fide intelligence credentials provided by the United States Air Force. For this reason, Terry was entrusted to orbit with some pretty heavy hitters coming from both sides of the equation, both government and civilian. Let's catch up with Terry and see if he will tell us the names of some of these heavy hitters in the MENA story. Terry, in your book, Compromised, you talk about being sponsored into Bill Clinton's inner circle shortly after moving to Little Rock in 1983. That's right. You know, my background's manufacturing. And uh, I'd moved to Arkansas and co-founded a business, an ultralight manufacturing firm, with a man named Seth Ward. Now, Seth refers to himself as a Little Rock industrialist. He is, in fact, a self-made multimillionaire. And Seth is now emerging, though, as sort of the mystery man behind the whole Whitewater affair. Seth has a son-in-law named Webb Hubble. Webb Hubble, of course, worked at the uh, Rose Law Firm and, uh, in fact, right adjacent to Hillary Clinton's office. So, in fact, it was through Seth Ward and Webb Hubble that my wife Janice and I were introduced into the social circles of Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, is that the same Seth Ward whose name has been associated with Madison Guarantee, the Little Rock savings and loan controlled at one time by James McDougall, the, the so-called friend of Bill and Hillary Clinton who, who brought them into the Whitewater Land Development Project? Yeah, that is the same Seth Ward, all right. And, of course, his son-in-law, Webb Hubble, is the man who worked side-by-side -side with Hillary Clinton at the Rose Law Firm and the man who Clinton had as his number three person in the Department of Justice until Webb resigned. The same Webb Hubble who is now a felon as a result of pleading guilty to Whitewater-related crimes. I believe they included overbilling the government when Webb was at the Rose Law Firm and tax invasion. It looks like Webb Hubble will soon be a star prosecution witness in the Whitewater investigation. Terry, it seems the Ward family was right in the thick of things. Were there any other family members that play into the story? Yeah, the Ward family is actually sort of infamous in Arkansas. Seth has a, uh, one son. His name is uh, Seth Jr. People call him Skeeter. Skeeter manages the family-owned business POM, or Park on Meter, in Russellville, Arkansas. And, of course, the world now knows that POM has a military division that has provided weapons parts for various concerns, including Ivers Johnson Firearms, the CIA's proprietary.
You know, Skeeter even admitted this clandestine relationship in a secretly taped interview. I ran my machine the second shift to make, get the parts out for them real quick, and they never they stiffed me, and I never paid. They were bankrupt. But you did make some parts for Ivers Johnson? I made, yeah, I made some firing pins, I think it was, on a screw machine. Uh, for them, it's about $12,000 worth, and they never paid. They filed bankruptcy. But an often overlooked ex-member of the Ward clan is Finus Shellnut. Finus surfaced briefly when the Jennifer Flowers scandal broke. It seems he and Bill Clinton were sharing Jennifer's favors. But when I met Finus in 1983, he was married to Seth Ward's youngest daughter, and it was Finus who worked for a bond trader named Dan Lassiter. Dan Lassiter? That's a name I've heard before. Isn't he Bill Clinton's old friend, and wasn't he convicted of cocaine charges? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Dan Lassiter is another multimillionaire that enters into this story. Uh, Dan, of course, was a uh, very high-profile uh, bond trader who lived in Little Rock in the mid-1980s, traveled in very high social circles. In fact, it was Dan Lassiter who not only uh, employed Finus Shellnut, but it was Dan Lassiter who employed Roger Clinton as well. Dan Lassiter employed Roger Clinton, the president's brother? Didn't they both go to prison on cocaine charges? Yeah, that's right. You know, it was uh, Roger who was Dan's chauffeur, actually. And, of course, it was Dan Lassiter and Roger who got involved in the, the whole drug investigation that ultimately ended up ensnaring about ten other prominent Arkansans, including an Arkansas state senator. So there was a multitude of people that went to, uh, that went to prison over this story. Another interesting point, though, that I point out in my book Lassiter and Company, Dan Lassiter's firm, is where Barry Seal was doing not only his, but the CIA's investment banking. You're saying, as an insider, that you have knowledge of Barry Seal running the CIA's money through Lassiter and into the Arkansas bond business. That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, in fact, Barry Seal confided to me that he was taking millions of dollars of money to Dan Lassiter to more or less be laundered through his firm in the form of loans money being slipped back quietly to uh, CIA subcontractors, companies performing services for the CIA in Arkansas during this whole time frame. That, that sounds like a pretty slick arrangement, but it must have included people beyond Seal and Lassiter to pull that off without triggering questions from bank officials. Can you name any of the recipients of these fictitious loans? Yes, I can. Uh, in my book, in fact, I document a $2.75 million loan made to POM or Park on Meter. Now that money was diverted through ADFA, Arkansas Development and Finance Authority, which in, in itself was a quasi-state-run organization set up by Bill Clinton for the purpose of administering loans to underprivileged companies. Terry, are you saying that ADFA, the Arkansas Development Finance Authority, a state agency, was created by Bill Clinton as a way to launder CIA money? I can say this. From its inception in 1985 to 1991, ADFA loaned out over $719 million. Now, there have been freedom of information lawsuits filed in Arkansas trying to get the state to show the buyers of those bonds, the, the bond sales that went to create that kind of money. To date, there's been no admission by the state of where that money came from. And the POM loan, going back to it, was in violation of ADFA's charter because certainly POM would have qualified for outside loans without ADFA's backing. That is a lot of money. 
nearly three quarters of a billion dollars. And you say Barry Seal's organization was responsible for bringing in a substantial amount of that cash. Well, by Seal's own estimate, he was flying in nearly $40 million a month into Little Rock at the height of the money laundering activities in 1985. Tell me, has, has anyone else surfaced who could help corroborate the strange goings-on within the bond industry of Arkansas? Yes, there's a man named Dennis Patrick and others who have surfaced, but Patrick can document over $109 million was laundered through his bond trading account in uh, the mid-1980s. Where was Patrick doing his trading? At Dan Lassiter's. At the same time frame, Barry Seal was flying in the agency's money. A hundred and nine million dollars. <laughs> no wonder they call Arkansas the land of opportunity. But tell me, when was the MENA operation as you knew it? When was it curtailed and why did the CIA shut it down? Since you brought up their old state slogan, to answer that, you really must go back to their other state slogan, which is Arkansas is a natural high. You see, it was the drug investigation into Dan Lassiter and Roger Clinton that caused the CIA to abruptly curtail their operation and pull out. What had transpired was by 1986, there were two independent grand juries being formed to really start probing into all this money laundering activity, which, which appeared to be coming from a major drug operation. The last thing the CIA needed was for a multitude of their assets to be dragged before federal grand juries. Terry, I recall in your book you talking of a high-level secret meeting taking place near Little Rock uh, in early 1986. It included discussions of neutralizing the Justice Department's probe into MENA and Dan Lassiter's firm. Tell us about that meeting. Who attended and why was the meeting called? The meeting you're referring to is the meeting I call the bunker meeting since the meeting took place in a World War II ammunition storage bunker at Camp Robinson, an army camp slightly northwest of uh, Little Rock. The meeting had been called actually as an operational transitional meeting to discuss the nuts and bolts of moving part of this operation to Mexico. But what transpired was a rather heated discussion between Bill Clinton and the CIA's uh, designee from Washington concerning damage control for the Clinton gubernatorial administration. Now, let me get this straight. You're saying you can place Bill Clinton directly in the Iran-Contra loop. I certainly can. And, you know, I almost wish I couldn't because I feel a lot of my legal problems stem from the fact that, that Clinton thrust himself into that meeting, but basically exposing himself to all of us that were attending, and thus, in essence, compromising himself. Who did he compromise himself to? Well, certainly me. You know, I was asked to come in to cover the loose technical ends of, of my transfer to Guadalajara. The man who I was scheduled to have a one-on-one -on -one discussion with was uh, a man who I knew as Max Gomez, who was going to be my new handler in Mexico. Beyond that, uh, John Cathy, my old uh, CIA handler from Oklahoma City, was there. Aki Sawahata, who was the local CIA resident case officer in Little Rock, he attended the meeting. And in addition to that, the person that was supposed to come in and represent the state's interest was a man named Bob Nash, who was the director of Arkansas Development and Finance Authority. Terry, I've read your book.
Now, most of these people weren't really using their real names, were they? They had code names, right? Well, you know, I would find uh, years later that I was orbiting in some pretty high circles, some very high echelons, that even to this day still impress me. Uh, let's try to decode these guys. Uh, first of all, John Cathy is, in fact, Oliver North. Um, secondly, Max Gomez, now that's interesting. Gomez is, in fact, Felix Rodriguez. Rodriguez, not only being an ex-CIA agent going back to the Bay of Pigs, uh, the Phoenix Project in Vietnam, Felix Rodriguez uh, is a close confidant of George Bush's and the man who tracked down and was even uh, around during the assassination of Che Guevara. Che Guevara being Fidel Castro's lieutenant. Uh, beyond that, we had uh, Aki Sawahata, still a mystery man to me. Uh, we still don't know his real identity. But the man named Robert Johnson is actually William P. Barr, who was later the attorney general for George Bush. Now, I believe I've named everyone, but uh, there were two people that we think were still using their correct names, and that being Bob Nash and, and Bill Clinton. Of course we know now Bill Clinton's real name isn't Bill Clinton. <laughs> Let's get back to the discussions of damage control. Well, you've already witnessed the frustration of several police officers who just could not get the MENA story to go forward. Their investigations seemed to be contained or undermined, short-circuited, whatever you want to call them. In that bunker meeting, uh, I witnessed the containment effort for this entire scandal, and quite frankly, it's shocking to realize all it took was for the authority of two U.S. attorneys to be undermined. The language that was used was that these guys would basically get religion. And if our system of checks and balances is that fragile, uh, something's wrong. But obviously that's what went on because the rest is history. There were no indictments handed up. So two U.S. attorneys were somehow told just to back off? Is that right? That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, so-called national security interest can undermine a whole Justice Department if a setting attorney general is not the marching order given him by the president, and in this case, the director of the CIA. So how many times did you meet with Bill Clinton? Actually, on three separate occasions, uh, only two of which I'm free to discuss on this interview. The third may come up in my court case in Little Rock, Arkansas. But you've heard about the first one, the one in the so-called bunker meeting. The second one took place outside of a Mexican food restaurant in Little Rock named Juanita's. Um, that brief encounter, impromptu encounter, was to discuss uh, my moving on down to Mexico to uh, help set up the uh, CIA's front company at the Guadalajara airport. Terry, why would Clinton care if you moved to Mexico or not? You know, that's a good question. And in hindsight, I'm sure Bill Clinton saw me as a liability. You know, considering what all I had seen while I worked there with the Central Intelligence Agency, considering the social circles I was orbiting in, well, I'm sure he was just as, quite frankly, wanted me as far from Little Rock, Arkansas as he could get me. So in other words, he wanted you out of Dodge City, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. There were, there were no threatening comments, but uh, he made it very clear uh, while sitting there in his van outside the restaurant that, that uh, he wanted me to go ahead and continue 
with my plans to, to move to Mexico to fulfill my obligation with the CIA. You moved to Mexico to set up this front company for the CIA. Sounds exciting. Well, you know, quite frankly, it got a little more exciting than I had bargained for. Uh, my job was really just to move to the Guadalajara Airport, set up a company, Machinery International, uh, who was a, to be a bona fide company, a company to uh, operate in the machine tool industry, a company to bring in equipment to help automate Mexico. Now, of course, covertly, it was to perform services for the uh, U.S. government. Just exactly what did these covert services include? Phase one of the plan was pretty simple. This company was to store, warehouse, safeguard, transship weapons, uh, weapons that were destined ultimately for Central America. Uh, phase two of the plan, however, which I found much more interesting, was that Machinery International would serve as a controlling entity to actually manufacture weapons on Mexican soil. Were the plans implemented? Well, I moved my family to Mexico in July of 1986, but phase one of the plan was abruptly interrupted in October of that same year due to the uh, C-123 shoot-down. That uh, incident caused us all to uh, basically lie low for a while. However, by January of 1987, we all breathed a sigh of relief and decided to, to go forward with the plan, thinking that the Mexican side of, of the enterprise hadn't really been discovered. Um, phase two, uh, just as we were starting into phase two, uh, I was sort of uh, taken out of the operation due to what I call as a, a rift with my CIA handlers. Terry, tell us about that rift. In the book, you keep us on the edge of our seats while you negotiate your way out of Mexico. But this was a little more than a casual riff. This was life and death stuff. Well, you know, my agreement with the CIA was to transship weapons, plain and simple. Uh, no one had ever discussed transshipment of drugs with me. If, if they had, I wouldn't have been involved in any of this. But by uh, early 1987, I had proved to myself beyond the shadow of a doubt that some of the people I was working with uh, were using... Uh, my facility and using uh, the aircraft they were hauling the weapons in order to transship cocaine back to the United States how much cocaine literally tons you know we're not talking kilos here but tons so there is no war on drugs not from what I ever saw at least not uh, while operating out of Guadalajara um, you know my whole problem began when I took Nancy Reagan's advice and, and tried to say no to the drug trafficking side of this story. Do you have any evidence of the CIA's drug trafficking through your facilities? Any witnesses? Yes, in fact, there was a very credible witness. And um, I might add, he's been thoroughly deposed about his observations of cocaine being transshipped through my Guadalajara warehouse. In the book, you detailed a trip to San Miguel de Allende, a town in Mexico where you confronted Felix Rodriguez, a.k.a. Max Gomez, with your evidence that his operation was in the drug business. Tell us about that meeting. First of all, there's a witness to that meeting. Uh, I planned it that way. I took a Mexican citizen friend of mine, a man named Patrick Juin, to basically um, serve as my insurance policy. 
I uh, strategically positioned Patrick uh, in a restaurant so he could observe uh, Max Gomez, a.k.a. Felix Rodriguez, and Rodriguez could observe him. Uh, you know, I kid you not, I was frightened. Uh, the good side is Patrick didn't have to witness a homicide, and uh, of course the bad side is uh, things didn't turn out as we agreed in that meeting. So you and Mr. Gomez came to an amicable agreement? He considered you a loose cannon, right? I mean, you just, you wouldn't go along with the drug trafficking. You just waltzed out of there? Well, that's what happened, although I did have a major bargaining chip. Uh, I was in possession of evidence that concretely proved that cocaine had been transshipped uh, through my warehouse by CIA people. What kind of concrete evidence? Well, I had samples of shipment that I had found in my warehouse in Guadalajara, July 5th, 1987. You see, I had had the wherewithal to safeguard a few kilos just to be used as evidence, seeing as how my handlers kept complaining I lacked concrete evidence. It was mutually agreed upon that I didn't have what it took to be a CIA agent, and uh, I should probably leave Mexico. So eventually it was agreed upon that my wife and I and our three sons could travel back to the U.S. unharmed. But you were double-crossed, weren't you? I mean, you do say in the book you found out you weren't dealing with honorable men. Correct. And that's where this story gets real personal and real scary. Uh, shortly after my family and I crossed the Rio Grande, we were able to ascertain that there had been a computer profile created on us that labeled us pretty much a modern-day Bonnie and Clyde. That profile showed us as being armed and dangerous. It said that we carried concealed weapons, had been known to use them in the past. Of course, it labeled me as a, as a high-profile drug trafficker operating out of Central and South America. Uh, you know, and besides that, we found out that people were actively trying to determine our whereabouts. What did you think they wanted? Well, most assuredly, they wanted me to meet the same demise as Barry Seal. They wanted me and my wife dead. Terry. Did you ever find out who created the false computer profile of you and your wife? And yes, that person is Bill Clinton's old chief of security, Arkansas State Police Captain Raymond Buddy Young. Now, Mr. Young is no longer with the Arkansas State Police, however. Uh, Mr. Young is now with FEMA, or Federal Emergency Management Authority, for the Southwest out of Denton, Texas. But you and your wife have sued Buddy Young and the others who say you were involved in this ordeal, correct? Yeah, the criminal justice system was obviously used against me and my wife by some very powerful, selfish, and cowardly individuals. Uh, we've sued the people that we feel we can prove helped orchestrate the wrongful criminal indictment against us. Uh, you know, I'm not going to sleep until I can drag those people to court. They have to be held accountable for their actions. In fact, the federal judge who acquitted me said that Young and another ex-trooper had what he called demonstrated a reckless disregard for the truth. Now, Harry Truman, my old hero, wouldn't have been so kind with his selection of words. Harry would have said, they are blatant liars who perjure themselves as they try desperately to get me and my wife convicted on trumped-up felony charges just to destroy my credibility. But I'm still willing to give the system its chance to work and drag those who attempt to destroy me to justice. Terry, do you feel threatened? 
I mean, you're obviously making some very powerful people very, very nervous. Sure, I'm human, and I operate under a continuous threat of not only to my person, but my family as well. You know, our, our phones have been bugged, we've had burglaries, uh, I've had a written death threat pasted on top of a cover page of Time magazine. These are cowardly people who it's difficult to tell what they'd resort to once we get them fully cornered. But uh, I can tell you this, I know what they're most frightened of, and it's a court of law. Come now and meet the woman Janice Reed, who was needlessly and mercilessly targeted and pursued by government agents. Meet Terry Reed's wife, the woman who has stood steadfast by his side during this strenuous ordeal. Janice, tell us, what is it like to marry a spy? To live a double life as the, as the wife of a spy? It was an interesting situation in that we were dealing with the FBI, the CIA, and the KGB, and it was hard to tell who was whom. When you and Terry decided to get married, who did he tell you he was spying for? It was with the FBI in, in a relationship with the CIA. Did you meet some of the other agents and spies Terry was working with? Yes, I met quite a few. He was dealing with uh, several international people, a lot of Japanese, a lot of Hungarians, and then someone who surfaced later in the news uh, that I met as John Cathy. He later surfaced as Oliver North, but I did meet him in Oklahoma City. Do you have any distinct memories of Oliver North? Well, as a matter of fact, he happened to be in town uh, when I gave birth to my oldest son, Duncan. Uh, and John Cathy, who later became known to me as Oliver North, uh, came by the hospital with Terry and brought roses and, uh, and offered his congratulations. When you moved to Little Rock and Terry began working with Oliver North's Contra training program, did you know then what he was doing? Yes, to a certain extent. Um, Peripherally, I knew uh, what he was involved with. Uh, I preferred not to know all the details, and obviously he was not going to tell me all the details. What was his main job in the Barry Seal operation? It ultimately ended up working in the MENA, Arkansas area, training Contra pilots. Who were some of the Arkansas's power elite that Terry's CIA assignment put him into play with? I mentioned Webster Hubble. Of course, we were, my husband was acquainted with Bill Clinton. Uh, Vincent Foster, um, a lot of that group from the Rose Law Firm were acquaintances. After Arkansas, after Arkansas, you and Terry moved to Mexico to work for the CIA. How did you like living in Mexico? I fell in love with it. I mean, the people are so genuine and just wonderful, warm people. And I found it being a wonderful experience for my family. How many children did you have when you moved there? Uh, when we moved there, I had two. When we left, I had three. These are all boys? All little, mm-hmm, all little boys. What was Terry doing for the CIA in Mexico, and what happened? Terry was involved in, um, he had a front company. That's what was going on. Uh, we had a legitimate manufacturing operation going on down there. Uh, <clears throat> But in the summer of 1987, he came across some drugs, cocaine as a matter of fact, a large shipment. And once he became aware of that and I became aware of that, we decided this is not what we're down here for. We were being used and we just wanted away from it. What was the role of the front company? A CIA front company normally has more than one purpose. Uh, Terry has a manufacturing background uh, and he's 
te technology is one of his true loves. Uh, he was involved in high-tech machine tool equipment, uh, shipping it down to Mexico, uh, trying to start up businesses down there, which is very legitimate as what, what was going on then and is what is still going on now. Uh, through this company, he also allowed weapons to be shipped through the company, and he was aware of that and went along with that. What we weren't aware of is crates were being shipped back through his company back into the United States by agents down there, uh, and they were shipments of drugs and cocaine. And this was done with the knowledge of the U.S. government. When you became aware of this, how did you react? Oh, I, I, was, I was terrified. Uh, I, did, I did not want any part of the drug world. That whole world, they have their own set of rules. I was down there. I was a mother. I had a family. I had three little boys to think about. That's not what I bargained for. I wanted out, and Terry did too. How did you and Terry extricate yourselves from this dangerous environment? Um, it wasn't just an automatic overreaction. Terry and I sat down, decided how we're going to get out of this mess. And over the course of about a month, we tried to set things in play that would get us out of there. It ended up with a fairly uh, argumentative confrontation with one of his handlers down there, and it was not a pleasant scene. And he said, well, okay, well, we're just going back to the States. We went out of here. I don't want any more to do with this, and we're gone. And we left, and that's when our troubles began. What were your plans as you left Mexico? We thought we were going to the States to get help, to see Oliver North, to see the people that were behind setting us up in Mexico. We thought, well, we'll just tell them what's going on. They'll understand. They'll take care of it. We're very naive. After returning to the U.S., what happened? Bit by bit, we found out how deeply we were involved in this. And Terry found out more and more how much inside the inner circle he was, unwittingly and unknowingly. And based on that, I was very much a part of that, too, by virtue of the fact I was married to him. Um, once we got back to the States, we found out our parents were getting phone calls, for, uh, suspicious phone calls, wanting to know our whereabouts. Uh, when agents started showing up at the doorstep of my mother-in-law and my parents saying they were looking for us, we got the message real fast that this was not going to be fun. So you were being painted as drug traffickers and agents of the U.S. government were looking for you? They went to my sister, they went to my mother, they went to my father, they went to Terry's 72-year-old mother and threatened. They threatened family members saying, you turn over your children, tell us where they are, if you don't, you're in trouble with the law, too, and you can be incarcerated. When we were dealing with that, with our elderly parents, seeing them being threatened, we knew this was for real, and they weren't going to be understanding. They were after us. What did you do then? At that point in time, we decided we're going to take off. We're going to run because, obviously, they were not being reasonable. They did not want to hear our side of the story. How does it feel to be pursued by government agents when you've done nothing wrong? But during the course of this, when I realized I had no one to turn to, I had no place to go. I was a citizen wronged, but where could I go? The people I, sh I felt I should be able to go to were the people that were after me. That, the level of despair when I realized that, like, I am a person without a country. Uh, that was something that was 
very difficult to deal with. So you and Terry fled for your lives. Yes, in fact, we had a motorhome and, and three little boys and a German Shepherd dog, and we took off, not knowing, not having any idea where we were headed. Initially, we had felt that there was someone in Washington that was going to help us, but we soon came to learn we were being double-crossed. We had no idea. Nothing can prepare you for this sort of shock. How do you feel? Uh, my husband is a very patriotic person, as well as I am, and the fact that we thought we were doing the right thing uh, and helping our government, helping our country, and then to have this happen, I can't tell you what it does to you as a human being. I'm, the, the trauma and the shock and the despair one feels and the loneliness, thinking it's just us out here being chased. What was your loneliest moment? During the course of all this, when all this came about, my father had a stroke. I was there at the hospital with him when all this came down on us. I had to leave in the middle of the night with my family, and I had to make a decision. If I leave my father now, I may never see him again, but I also have three children that are depending on me, and someone is wanting to take me away from them. And I had to make a decision. It was very, very, that was probably the most difficult point of my life um, when I had to leave my father in the hospital. I felt very alone, and the despair was almost more than I could imagine and bear. How did you deal with this pain? I guess when you work through all these phases, like the shock, the denial, the anger, you know, Terry and I had to work through that in about 48 hours. I mean, we had to get through it. If we had wallowed in that and gone through all those phases, we would have been captured. We didn't have time for that. We had too many our children relied on us, and we had too many responsibilities. So we worked that real fast and then got into the survival mode. Where did you run to initially? We ended up in San Diego. We spent Christmas in San Diego. Uh, we thought that's right near the border, and Terry's thought was that's the last place they'd, that the reeds would go. That would be a stupid place to hang out is at the border. They might be combing the borders. So do the unexpected. I mean, he had years of intelligence training, and uh, you know, in that in that facet of this whole saga, I mean, he relied on his training, and it saved us. Dennis, what sticks in your mind about that period of your life? It was just uh, the feeling of of despair I had that Christmas, knowing I was I was a wanted fugitive, uh, and watching everyone around in the Christmas spirit, all the families singing, caroling, watching the Christmas specials. I, I felt I had so much pain that Christmas, but I had to, I, I made a true attempt to keep up a facade for the children, you know, trying to sing carols with them, make Christmas ornaments, you know, it was just, it was all, I felt like remote control. I was just a robot going through the motions, uh, but the pain, that was, pro um, that was my worst Christmas ever. How old were your children that Christmas? Baxter was a baby. He was six months old. Um, Elliot was two and a half, and Duncan was had just turned five. Did you do anything else in San Diego besides celebrate a tense Christmas? Well, not knowing what was going on within the national computer system or the law enforcement system, we definitely were not comfortable being Terry and Janet Reed. Uh, we spent the time in San Diego establishing a corporation 
uh, establishing new identities. And once we had that taken care of, we were a little more comfortable uh, leaving. I, we definitely did not want to stay there for any length of time, and we felt more comfortable being removed from our previous persons to Epitary and Janice Reed. Where did you go then? We left San Diego and eventually ended up in Maine, uh, which is about as far as we could drive. As you wandered around America, how did you control your fear and your anxiety? Yeah, I had to focus on one day at a time, and, and that was as a mother, as a school teacher. It was not as a fugitive from our government, uh, and that's what kept me going. Uh, we had a motor home. I decorated it. I put the alphabet chart up, the numbers, George Washington. Uh, we had a little school session going every day, and we had some great geography lessons. I mean, he went to most of the national parks. We saw Old Faithful. We saw Niagara Falls, and he's, the children are standing in front of all these uh, national monuments. We've got all kinds of photos uh, that year. And These government agents who were tampering in law enforcement computers, how did they portray you? What, what kind of lies did these renegade agents insert into the computers? I, I later found out after I obtained my FBI file through discovery that we had been labeled armed and dangerous as ne very nefarious characters and that was so frightening. Who were you the most frightened of? I'm not saying the FBI is, is a bad agency or the CIA. Our concern was the renegade agents out there uh, that are totally out of control. Yeah. Um, and that's who I was most frightened of. And the power they can wield, they are legitimate agents, and the power they have to alter your profile in NCIC. Um, I had done nothing other than being married to Terry Reed. What was Terry doing throughout all of this? He's a very calculating person. Uh, he had his manual for flight instruction and how to deal with stress under pressure. And I, he would want me to read all these manuals. And I'd go, no, that's not the way I operate. You know, I mean, he, he can sit there, remove himself from the situation, and know how he should react. I'm more emotional. I can't sit there and read how to deal with stress and just incorporate that. It's, that's not... That's obviously much easier said than done. I'd got a lot of strength from him as well as he got a lot of strength from me. He knew I was there to take care of the children. That facet of his life was being cared for by me. I knew he was there to get us out of this mess. I, mean, I had to have his belief that with his training and his background and knowledge that he would somehow get us out. He, he monitored that phase. I took care of the nurturing, the maternal, the family. And he relied on me for that. We needed each other. Janice, what if you got separated or one of you was arrested? Had Terry covered that contingency? We had a plan. We pl uh, Terry always had plan A, B, and C in envelopes, in code talk, and I had to have those memorized. We knew where we were going to rendezvous if, or, or what each plan was. Now, how long did this last? How long were you on the run? Over six months we were on the run. After that length of time, you just start to question, what are we doing? We obviously had evaded them. Terry did a very good job keeping us out of harm's way. Uh, it got to the point, though, we did feel very threatened. I started, I'd been asked before, what were you prepared to do? When I felt, as a mother, threatened, I, I would have been prepared to do anything. In fact, I got to the point, I did get a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber featherweight, and I carried it in our diaper bag.
It was with me at all times because I never knew if someone was going to come barging in the door. That could happen. If they had located us, if they had put a monitor on us, they could have found us easily, barging our door in the middle of the night and trying to take us away. I was prepared to shoot, being responsible for three little boys. I, I felt very capable of doing what I needed to do. How did you feel the day you stopped running? I think we were just so worn out. Uh, I guess we still had this hope, and Terry had enough contact thinking someone might be able to take care of this up the line. I mean, we wanted to think that. We were told that was going on. Uh, we just didn't know. But you just get to the point, you can't do this forever. We're not being fair to our children, our families, ourselves, going through this trauma. Then what transpired? Two and a half years in the criminal justice system. And that, I can tell you, is no fun. Our troubles were just beginning. What do you believe led to your charges? There was never any evidence um, on my part that I should ever have been indicted. In fact, I sat in the federal court one day, and the judge said, pointed to me and goes, well, I can't figure out why she's here. And uh, None of us could, other than the fact I had a marriage license, and I'd married Terry Reed, and that's why I was there. I was used as a pawn. Uh, to get back at Terry. I was approached on numerous occasions saying, hey, you tell us everything you know, you, t you tell us everything about your husband and we'll let you go. Well, first of all, I had nothing to say. And second of all, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I was not, I can't be used as a pawn. I was offended that they were trying to use me for that and putting me through the pain of the indictment process. We were both up for 20 years. I mean, living with that every day and dragging on for two and a half years, I mean, it's, it's amazing we survived. Why was Terry charged? He was set up. The problem with Terry was um, in some of these activities, uh, covert activities, there's often people from the criminal world that get involved. Uh, CIA, FBI, they like to use uh, drug smugglers or former criminals or pilots that have a record because you know they're um, they're compromised terry had no record i mean he had a squeaky clean background so um, you know they need something to set him up with which is what happened was it a nightmare being in the criminal justice system yes as a matter of fact being involved in the criminal justice system for as long as we were was a rude awakening um, i found out that Justice, um, justice is not out there unless you have a whole lot of money. Uh, I hate to say that, but uh, we were forced to liquidate everything we had. Uh, we had a little money at the time. That was all depleted immediately. Uh, we were forced to get two different attorneys, um, which, because of conflict, they tried to turn uh, me against him. Um, and after two and a half years, we did not declare bankruptcy, however, our credit was ruined. Um, we were nearly destitute after the fact, after we were uh, found innocent uh, through freedom of information. We found documents that would have totally exonerated us that the prosecution had within their, uh, right there within their office that they, they suppressed. Uh, so the, the, the shock and the horror just continued. Initially, it was all physical, emotional. And later, it was just the shock of, this is the way it works, and no one is held accountable. That's what's so wrong. I sat there in the courtroom watching a prosecutor point the finger at me, saying, I deserve to be locked up. 
when I had done nothing. I was found innocent. Terry was found innocent. We walked out of the courtroom that day. It's like, adios. It's been nice. It's like there's no restitution. Our lives were destroyed. Financially and emotionally, we were just devastated. It's like, sorry, I guess we made a mistake. But they don't even say that. You know, you walk out with a piece of paper, not guilty. You know, goodbye. Our system is out of control. There is no check and balance. And that's what's frightening. Janice, do you feel this is the way the system has always worked? Or have things changed? Now, this is not the America I grew up with. In fact, I can't believe this is America. I can't believe this is what our, our system has degenerated to. I want to go back in time. I grew up in the 50s. I want to start over. We need to start looking back the way it used to be when people were honest, when people were accountable. That's what needs to happen because this is not the America I grew up with. What would you like to tell the American people about the corruption within the Justice Department? We were discussing how I felt when we were acquitted. Um, we went through a very brief period where we thought, well, let's just start all over. You know, let's just take it, pick up where we left off. Well, we found we couldn't do that. We had gone through too much just to walk away from it. I, and I knew Terry would, he couldn't live with himself. When you sit in federal court and watch uh, state troopers and government officials sit there and perjure themselves, uh, and the prosecutor knows that, that's not right. But Janice, you're fighting within an obviously corrupt system. Do you honestly think you can win? Well, I'm a 60s person. I mean, that's inherent. That's an inherent part of me. I, you know, I still have this sense of right will prevail. And, I, you know, I, I think sometimes I'm terribly stupid to think that. But um, Terry and I got acquitted. I didn't think that would happen. Um, I'm committed. I, I do have this belief that we can make a difference. Preachers and deputies, hired by the rich. Now we've got to stop there due to time. There's 17 minutes more of that video. The last five minutes is an appeal for funds for the Reed Court Offensive. That unfortunately founded in 1996 when U.S. District Judge George Howard Jr. ruled that because he claimed their evidence was, quote, based on conjecture, speculation, and coincidence, unquote, then he would not allow any evidence about Terry Reed's missions with the FBI, the CIA, anything to do with Bill Clinton, Barry Seal, or Dan Lasseter. Now, an interesting decision there, especially when one bears in mind that... Judge George Howard Jr. was a personal appointee of Governor Bill Clinton. This and all previous episodes of Unwelcome Guests are available for download from our MP3 archive at unwelcomeguest.net slash archive. If you'd like to download them 100 at a time, you can do that at unwelcomeguest.net slash downloads. Theme tune is by Billy Bragg and Wilco, with lyrics by Woody Guthrie. Just like